ready to wrap up the 2023 Midwest Family Midwest Catholic Family Conference. So thanks so much for spending this whole weekend with us, and we hope that you've uh, gotten a lot out of this, had a chance to really delve into the talks and be inspired by our great speakers and through Mass and your time in prayer. Um, don't have a whole lot of announcements by this time of the weekend. Uh, just to remind everybody that next year's conference is currently scheduled for August 2nd through the 4th. 2024, so we certainly invite you back if that fits into your schedule. I'd like to bring up our first announcer of the afternoon session. You've seen him before. Um, he's been pretty popular, I think, all weekend long, so we're really excited uh, to be able to introduce Father Sebastian Walsh again. He is from the Abbey of St. Michael in the Diocese of Orange, California, where he serves as a Norbertine canon and the Dean of Studies of its seminary. Uh, Father Sebastian uh, attended Thomas Aquinas College, the Catholic University of America, the Pontifical University of St. Thomas in Rome, where he received a master's in sacred theology and a doctorate in philosophy. Father's not only an educator, but an author with works like Always a Catholic and St. Joseph, the man closest to Christ. He's also a regular guest on Catholic Answers Live. So please welcome again back to the stage, Father Sebastian Walsh. Thank you. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Mary, seat of wisdom, pray for us. St. Thomas Aquinas, our holy guardian angels and patron saints. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to all of you, and thank you again for coming to this I guess it's the second to the last conference here at the uh, Midwest Family, Catholic Family Conference. And I'm going to talk about something that has caused quite a bit of confusion and difficulty in the modern church, in the modern world, and that is the conflict between the church's understanding of marriage and family and the world's understanding of marriage and family. Um, that confusion has led to the impression of tremendous injustices Young people have a hard time understanding why it is that the church does not allow you know, two people who love each other to get married as long as they love each other, right? Uh, young people have a hard time understanding exactly why it is the church uh, teaches against so many things that the world says are actually beneficial and good. And so there's a, the perception of very serious injustice on the part of the church and the world certainly uses that perception to draw young people away from the church. So the purpose of my talk today is to clear up that confusion so that there's no longer any doubt in your mind that the world and the church do not have the same understanding of marriage or a family. And why it is that the church's understanding is really what's good for the human person and the world's understanding is not. That's more or less the purpose of this talk. We're going to start with a tale of two definitions, two different understandings of marriage. There's a traditional definition of marriage, which has been held by the church since the beginning of the church, and has been held by, um, practically speaking, all cultures in human history, and almost all throughout all human history in time, with the exception of a few places, modern Western culture over the last 30 years. That's the traditional definition of marriage, which I'll give you in a second. And then there's the new definition of marriage, okay? A modern definition of marriage, which is something that was invented in the last 30 or 40 years, and people are not even aware of the fact that there are these two completely different definitions floating around. And one of the reasons why there are problems is because they think the old definition, the thing referred to in the old definition, 
is really applicable to the new definition. What's the new definition of marriage? Most of us will recognize this because implicitly we've been trained in it. We don't even realize it. The new definition of marriage is a legal contract between two, so far it's only two, two persons for the sake of romantic love. That is the modern definition of marriage. A legal contract between two persons for the sake of romantic love. Okay? As I'll show later on in the talk, it's only a matter of time before the two persons go away because it's obvious that more than two people can feel romantic love for each other. As disordered as that is, the truth is, you can have three or four people feeling romantic love for each other, no doubt, and therefore, eventually that part of the definition is going to go away in modern law. Okay? It's already starting. I don't know if you know about that, but in Utah, um, you have cases of people who want to have uh, a polygamous marriage, right? And so they have one man and then the two women, and they claim they all want to get married to each other, and they all love each other, therefore they have the right to get married. You see how it goes? Okay. So it's only a matter of time before uh, that new definition just becomes a legal contract between however many people want it for the sake of romantic love. What's the traditional definition of marriage that the church has always been using? The traditional definition of marriage is a lifelong communion between a man and a woman established by their free consent, which is for the sake of the generation and the education of children. I'll repeat that. It's a lifelong communion between a man and a woman established by their free consent, which is for the sake of the generation and the education of children. Okay? a completely different definition, and the most important difference is the purpose, the last part of the definition. According to the traditional definition of marriage, marriage is for the sake of the generation, the education of children. It is not for the sake of romantic love, okay? That's a huge difference, as we'll see when we go along, okay? Now, let me say a few things about that traditional definition of marriage. By the way, that's natural marriage. If you wanted to make that into a sacrament, you would add this, which is a sign of the union between the divine and the human. That's the additional part that makes marriage a sacrament between the baptized. Okay? So the church recognizes natural marriage, what I defined, and sacramental marriage, if you make that addition. Okay? But the church does not and never has recognized this modern definition of marriage that's circulating in the culture, a legal contract between two persons for the sake of romantic love. Okay? Let me explain the traditional definition. Notice something. The definition holds together on its own. What do I mean by that? If I were to define something like a knife or a spoon, I would define it in terms of its purpose. Right? So I'd take the purpose and I'd say, hey, the purpose of a knife is to cut. It's got to be something you can use your hand to cut with, okay? So from the fact that a knife is for the sake of cutting, you can reason backwards to the fact that it has to be made of a hard material and it has to be sharp. You can reason backwards to the matter and to the form in some way. You see that? Well, the same thing's true about the traditional definition of marriage. If I know that marriage is for the sake of the generation of children, I can reason backwards to the fact marriage must be between a man and a woman. There's no natural way to get children unless you've got a man and a woman. See that? So right away, once you admit marriage is for the sake of generating children, you immediately realize it's got to be between a man and a woman, not just anyone. Okay? Secondly, once you recognize that marriage is also for the education of children, you realize it's got to be lifelong. It's got to be a lifelong union. Because the kind of education we're talking about in married life is not merely academic. Certainly there's an academic component to it. But education that is in the definition of marriage is primarily a moral education. And you are educating your children not only till they're 18 or 21, you are educating your children for their entire lifetime, as long as you are alive. Sign of that is, children don't get to 22 and think to themselves, well, 
I don't care if mom and dad split up. <laughs> Everyone thinks they have a right to have their parents together in a loving union to give them an example for the next stage of their life. So when your children are newly married and you are a middle-aged couple, you will be giving your children a moral example, an education on how to live together as a married couple, as middle-aged persons. And when your children are middle-aged, you will be senior citizens, and you will be giving an example of how to live together and love one another as a senior citizen couple. And when your children are senior citizens, you will be giving an example to your children of how to care for one another even in death, and to live for one another even in death, and to give that good example how to die well and how to love one another in that moment. So at every stage of your life, you're still educating your children. And they have a right to that moral example. Children spontaneously and naturally look to their parents for what should I do in the next stage of my life? And they have a right to expect that from you. You see, because marriage is for the sake of the education of children, it's got to be lifelong, okay? a lifelong union. Okay? So right away, you see how the parts of the definition hold together? Even the part about free consent. If you're going to enter into a lifelong relationship, you're not going to be able to do that well if you're forced into it. You see that? So marriage has to be by free consent. A lot of people, by the way, have a misconception. They think that in the Middle Ages or something that the church accepted arranged marriages where they just had to do what their parents said. That's not true. You can read from the patristic period, from St. John Chrysostom. You can read from the medieval period, from St. Thomas Aquinas. They absolutely insist that anyone who gets married must enter into marriage freely, and their parents cannot force them to marry. Okay? So please do not have that misconception in your own head. The people themselves have to freely choose their marriage. Okay? Otherwise, like I said, you're just not going to be able to do a good job if you're forced to do something that takes your entire life. So all the elements of the definition, a lifelong communion between a man and a woman established by their free consent for the sake of a generation, the education of children, it all holds together. You see that? It all makes sense together. I want to say something about lifelong communion. A communion is somewhat different from a community. You might define a community as a multitude of persons who are acting for a common goal, okay? So, like the city of Pasadena, where I come from, is a community, okay? But that's not a communion. A communion presupposes that there's knowledge and love of one another. You see that? So a communion is much deeper than a community. Examples of communions. A friendship is a communion. A marriage is a communion. A family is a communion. The church is a communion. The blessed in heaven are the communion of saints. The trinity is a communion of persons. And what they all have in common is that every member of a communion shares a life with every other member. Even in the church, as big as we are, we're all living the same life of Jesus Christ in holy communion. We're sharing a life together. And we all have the same Holy Spirit which enlivens the church. So all of us in the church are members of a communion. So you can define a communion as a multitude of persons in which each person somehow lives or shares the life of every other person. See that? And marriage is supposed to be a communion, not just a community, not just two people having a common address, right? It's supposed to be a sharing of life. That means knowledge and love. Okay? Now, when I prepare couples for marriage, I really stop at this point, and I say something that, that um, I think often really deeply impresses them. I say, look, you can know someone in a superficial way, but until you know them with all their problems and their faults, 
don't really know them yet. And I give an example. There was a young man who used to come to me for spiritual direction, and he went off to college, and so I hadn't seen him in a couple of years, but I did a wedding, and he and his girlfriend attended the wedding, and they were at the reception. So at the reception, I pulled him aside. We took a little walk and just to catch up, and I said, how are things going with that girl? He'd been dating this girl for about a year. And he says to me, terrible father. It surprised me. And I said, what's wrong? He says, she's in love with another man. That really surprised me. And I said, well, why are you here together? You seem to be having a good time. That doesn't make any sense to me. He says, father, let me explain. The whole time I've been dating her, I've been hiding my faults from her because I'm afraid she wouldn't want to date me if she knew them. She doesn't even know that I smoke. That was a really enlightening moment for me. I'm just like, if someone doesn't know you with your problems, you feel like they love someone else. They don't love you. So communion really implies that you really know each other, okay? All you married couples out there, you know each other's faults by now. You choose to love one another, even though you know one another's faults. That's so much deeper than just a community, okay? Marriage is supposed to be a communion. A family is supposed to be a communion. By the way, a sign of that, too, that definition I gave you of communion is, do you remember you married couples out there or you dated, dating and engaged couples out there? Do you remember when you were dating, how much you enjoyed looking at, uh, like, baby pictures and pictures of your spouse when they were little before you met them. Notice that? You're like, and hearing stories about one another's childhood before you met. You notice how much you enjoyed that? You know why? It's because you were trying to live the part of their life that you missed. Isn't that fascinating? When you're in a communion and you're living someone else's life, you want to live their whole life. Not just part of their life. Do you want to live par only part of your life? I don't think so. So if you're living in a communion with someone, you naturally want to live their whole life, not just part of it. And that's what communion is supposed to be in a marriage and in a family. Okay? So that's another reason, by the way, that marriage has to be lifelong, not only for the education of the children, but because it's a communion. So even if no children came about, you're still sharing a life together. And no one wants to live part of their own life. So if you're living in a communion, you don't want to live part of the life of your spouse. Let me ask you this simple question. Who here makes a friend and hopes that it'll be over after like a predetermined time period? You know, I'm gonna, let's be friends for five years and call it off. Does anyone do that? No. Because a friendship is a communion. Even a friendship by its nature is supposed to be lifelong. How much more than a marriage? You see that? We see how marriage is supposed to be lifelong, a lifelong communion. Okay? I already mentioned that it's between a man and a woman. If you accept the last part of the definition, for the sake of a generation of children, it's got to be between a man and a woman. Okay? Now, I'll defend that later because I'm fully aware of the many objections that you hear these days against the idea that marriage is for the sake of the generation of children, right? Obviously, elderly couples and fertile couples are allowed to get married, even in the Catholic Church. How can marriage possibly be for the sake of the generation of children if the church allows elderly and infertile couples to get married, right? And that's a standard objection. I will answer that in due time, don't worry. And it's got a very simple answer. It's surprising how hard it is for people to see simple things sometimes, just because of the prevailing culture, you know? But we'll pass over that for now. Granted that marriage is for the sake of the generation of children, it's got to be between a man and a woman, okay? And not just men and women, but one man and one woman. And I'll defend that too a little bit later. Okay, so let's look at that traditional definition of marriage. And I want to show you something about that definition that's really remarkable, that really distinguishes it from the modern definition of marriage. The definition of marriage I gave you, the traditional definition, is the object of a natural inclination in every human person. That means marriage as I've defined it will spontaneously arise 
wherever you find adult men and women, before there's any state, before there's the state of Kansas, the state of California, the United States of America, men and women were coming together, having their children and raising their children. See that? So marriage is the object of a natural inclination. And in order to justify that, I need to give you another definition. Okay? Definitions are really helpful. It helps clarify your thoughts and distinguish what you're thinking and saying from what other people are saying and thinking. Okay? So I want to give you a definition of a natural inclination. A natural inclination is a tendency that a natural thing has for the activities necessary for its being, its existence, or its well-being. I'll say that again. A natural inclination is the tendency that a natural thing has for the activities that are necessary for its being or its well-being. I will now proceed to give you some obvious examples. You have a natural inclination to breathe. If you do not do the activity of breathing, your human nature will go away in about five minutes. Okay? Natural inclination to breathe. You have a natural inclination to eat and to drink. If you do not do the activity of eating and drinking, your human nature will go away. And who knows how long, right? Drinking maybe a week or two, eating maybe a month or two. But in any case, you're, you're going to die if you do not eat and drink, okay? So clearly we have natural inclinations for breathing, for eating, for drinking. We also have a natural inclination to reproduce. If men and women do not come together and reproduce, then our nature will go away in about 100 years. I mean, no more human beings if men and women don't come together and reproduce. In fact, do you know the word natural? The word natural in English comes from the Latin word natura, which means birth. So there's hardly anything more natural than reproduction. Okay? So we can see already that it's the object of a natural inclination for men and women to come together and to have children. Okay? That's already a start. Okay? We're almost at marriage already. Now, before I go on, I want to clear up a misconception. A natural inclination is not necessarily a conscious emotional desire. A natural inclination is not necessarily reflected by a conscious emotional desire. I will give you a very clear example. There are people who have a disorder called anorexia. Anorexia causes people to feel repulsed by food. They do not want to eat food. And they would rather starve themselves to death than eat. This is a real condition. It really exists. There might even be people in this room who know someone who, are, who was afflicted by that. Okay? Therefore, they lost the conscious desire to eat. Just like people can lose the conscious desire to reproduce with a member of the opposite sex. Nevertheless, they still have a natural inclination. Natural inclinations are deeper than conscious desires. You see the difference there? So when I'm talking about a natural inclination, I'm not talking about how you feel. I'm talking about objectively what your nature is ordained to and needs to have for its being or its well-being. Okay? That's a really important distinction because most of the confusion today is based upon a confusion between strongly felt conscious desires and natural inclinations. Okay? So, natural inclinations are pre-conscious. They're deeper rooted than any emotion you might have. And if we have to choose between them, we know what we're supposed to do. No one says to a girl who's suffering from anorexia, well, you know what? Let's just not eat, because you identify as someone who doesn't eat. No one does that. No one prescribes her diet pills to help her lose weight. 
right? Because we know that it's bad for her human nature if she doesn't eat, regardless of how she feels. She might not even be able to control the way she feels or change the way she feels. And nevertheless, what do you say to her? Honey, you've got to eat. I'm sorry that it's hard. I'm sorry that it's painful emotionally for you. You have to eat. This is not good for you to follow your emotions in this area. Okay? We do it all the time, by the way, as parents. You know, when your children are about to kill each other? Have you noticed, like, you don't just say to your, your you know, five-year-old son who's about to bash your three-year-old son over the head with a bat, you don't say to him, well, you've got to follow your strong emotional desires. No, our species will go out of existence if little children are allowed to do what they want to do, right? So we constantly measure emotional desires against our natural inclinations, and we say whether or not those match up. Fine, if your emotional desires go along with your natural inclinations, more power to you. You do that. If your emotions are contrary to your natural inclinations, don't follow your emotions. Follow what you know is good for your nature. You see that? The same thing happens with people who have, for example, same-sex attraction. Right? Say, look, I know it's hard for you, but you can't just follow your emotions in a case like this. It's contrary to your very nature, your very existence. Okay? Even though you have strong desires, and I'll come back to that in a little bit, because I think that's a really important thing to be compassionate about and to really kind of go through well with your kids and grandkids and so forth. But once we see now that reproducing is the object of a natural inclination, we can also see the next step. Raising your children is the object of a natural inclination. If you don't want to raise your children, no one else is going to want to raise them, I'll tell you that. It's natural for us to raise our own children. Human beings, above all animals, require the longest time to raise. If we were spiders, we'd hatch and run away. And as much as parents might enjoy that, <laughs> the truth of the matter is, human beings take years before they're self-sufficient and independent. I mean, practically speaking, even, you know, in, in the most primitive societies where all they had to do was go around and gather food, you're talking about a kid isn't raised until they're like 10 or something, you know? They, they're not even able to provide for themselves until they're like 10 years old, okay? So, for human beings, it is natural to stay together and raise your children together. Since both of you, the husband and the wife, have the same children, it's natural for you not only to come together and reproduce, that's step one, but also to stay together and raise your own children. That's step two. We're already basically at marriage. Do you see that? It's the object of a natural inclination. If human beings don't raise their own children, our species goes out of existence. Okay? Then, there's a third step. It's also natural for one man and one woman to be united in marriage. Obviously, one man and several women, I'm sorry, one woman and several men is unnatural. It's very obvious why, because there's no natural way to tell whose children are whose, right? If a, if a woman marries several men, then the men don't know whose children am I raising. You see that? So that's called polyandry, where you've got one woman with several husbands. That's clearly unnatural, okay? The other thing that's unnatural is polygamy. Though more common than polyandry, it's still unnatural. Why? It's contrary to the education of the children, and it's contrary to the communion that must exist between a husband and wife. Children are not well-educated when there's multiple wives and multiple families. They do not see a good example of love between their dad and their mom. There are usually more children than someone could normally educate in a family like that. There's usual, usually rivalries and bitterness between the wives and the children. You read the Old Testament, when those patriarchs had multiple wives, the kids were trying to kill each other. And that's best case scenario when you had like, you know, virtuous people who are doing this, okay? So it's contrary to the good of the education of the children if you have polygamy. And not only that, 
It's contrary to the natural quality that should exist between a man and a woman. They can't live in communion if you've got one husband and multiple wives. There's no communion there. See that? The husband's sharing part of his life with this woman, part of his life with that woman, part of his life with that woman. It doesn't work. Okay? A sign of that is, in the human species, men and women are, are born in roughly equal numbers. <clears throat> There's approximately one man for every woman born in our species. If you were a lion, there'd be something like one male for every four or five females. That's a sign that lions are supposed to have multiple partners. Human beings are not supposed to have multiple partners. See that? Finally, the last step. Even the fact that marriage is publicly acknowledged in some public way is also natural for the well-being of marriage. Why is that? Two reasons. First of all, it prevents adultery. Adultery is obviously going to be harmful for the children. Okay? And if a husband and wife take these private vows and nobody knows they're married, well, what's going to happen? You know, the, the husband's out at work and some attractive vixen is looking him over and says, you're handsome, and she goes over and flirts with him. Well, that's going to promote adultery. She doesn't know he's married, right? Conversely, if the wife is, you know, she might be at the supermarket, some attractive young man is, you know, tries to ask her out on a date or something like that, right? Again, that's bad for the stability of the marriage. So it's important that there be an outward sign, here's my marriage ring, back off, right? Do not touch off limits. That prevents the chances or reduces the chances of adultery. The second thing that a public commitment does is it makes the bond more stable, which is great for children. It's good for children to be in a family where their parents are in a stable union. Okay? Now, how does it do that? I have a saying. In a world full of broken legs, it is important that there be casts. Okay? What does a cast do? A cast puts external pressure on the leg to hold the bones together and give them time to heal. When you take public vows in your marriage, there is social pressure holding your marriage together when the marriage is broken, giving you time to heal. Now, the obvious effects of this are clear. If you had a, a young man and a young woman who are right about to get married, and I've seen this case as a priest a few times now, they're two weeks before their marriage, and suddenly there's a huge fight, and they say awful things to each other. I think the marriage will be called off pretty quickly. On the other hand, if two weeks after the marriage, the same young man and woman get in a huge fight and say terrible things about each other, you know what happens then? For the most part, they go back to their corners, lick their wounds, and say, okay, we've got to figure this out. They've made that public commitment, and that social pressure on the outside is holding them together, giving them long enough time to reflect and realize where they're lacking in virtue, you know, and how they have to improve their marriage, okay? By the way, this is a little tangent here, but this is a little um, argument why marriage um, is not open to divorce, even natural marriage. And let me explain that. People say to me, look, Father, what about an abusive relationship where a husband is beating his wife terribly or um, where the wife is just berating the husband and she's got a drug and alcohol problem and she's horrible to the kids, or whatever. Let's say you've got the worst case scenario. Or even the case where one of the spouses just runs off, is unfaithful to the other spouse. Okay? They say to me, Father, that's not fair. You have to allow people to get remarried in those circumstances. Well, here's what I say about that. Let's talk about the infidelity first. Do your marriage vows begin with the word if? When you get married, you say, if you love me and honor me all the days of your life, then I will love you and honor you all the days of your life. Is that how your marriage vows went? They did not. And if they had gone that way, I can't imagine any marriage that would last. Because 
who doesn't feel at some point in their marriage unloved and dishonored? Who doesn't feel that way at some point in their marriage? So the truth of the matter is, each of you is making a unilateral and unconditional promise to the other before God that you will stay faithful even if they are not. That's the truth. So if your spouse is unfaithful and takes off with a floozy, on your part, say, well, he or she, they've got to be judged by God, but I have to be faithful. I made a vow that was unilateral and unconditional. And that's a hard saying. But unless we accept that hard saying, marriage won't be worth celebrating. Would you really celebrate a marriage where the vows began if? Would you? I don't think so. Why it's so beautiful to get married is a tremendous risk. Tremendous risk. You're putting your whole life into the hands of another person like that. Okay? What about the abusive case? Abusive marriage. Well, in that case, I'd like to give a simple example. Let us say that you've got uh, a bad tooth. And because you have a bad tooth, it hurts to eat. Is the solution to your life problem to stop eating? I will never eat again. Is that the correct solution? No, it is not. Because eating is not the problem. Eating is good for you. You know what eating is? The object of a natural inclination, just like marriage. Eating is good for you. The problem is not that you are eating. The problem is a bad tooth. And you need to address the real problem, the bad tooth. In the same way, if it hurts to be married, the problem is not that you are married. Marriage is not the problem. It's good for you. It's the object of a natural inclination. Marriage isn't the problem, so guess what isn't the solution? Divorce and remarriage. It's not the solution. The solution is working on one another's moral lives. The problem is a lack of virtue in one or both spouses. The solution is to acquire that virtue. Now, it may be that that can't happen. It may be that someone is so confirmed in vice, they never convert. It can be even, and I know a, a case like this, I knew a case of a married couple where they were happily married. The husband had a stroke that destroyed a part of his brain that regulated anger. And he became physically abusive and angry constantly. And they had to separate. But the wife never remarried. She never remarried. They had to live separately. So that is what you might have to do. You might have to live separately, but you're never free to violate your marriage vows. Okay? So in the case of abuse... You might have to live apart for a time, or even the most serious cases, permanently. But that doesn't mean we're free to remarry. Marriage, by its nature, is a lifelong communion. Okay? I'm assuming it's a valid marriage. I'm not talking about marriages that are annulled. I know there are cases where people don't know what they're doing when they supposedly get married. I'm talking about a valid marriage there. Okay? All right, I want to take a pause here now and go back to this question of natural inclinations, natural desires. It is highly likely that many, if not most, of the people in this room, even though we are, for the most part, devout Catholic families, many or most of the people in this room have a family member who suffers from either same-sex attraction or gender dysphoria. Okay? It's a good chance that that's happening in your family today. Okay? So I want to address that and talk about that for a little bit and how, how to deal with that. The first thing to do is to recognize that this is extremely emotionally painful for this person. And don't downplay that, okay? It's an extremely painful emotional reality for people who suffer from these things, okay? And nevertheless, it's an emotion that's leading to a self-destructive behavior, okay? So we can never condone the behavior even though we have to be compassionate with regard to the way they feel, okay? 
and acknowledge that and listen to it. Okay? The next step, and this is really important, is to show them that they are not singled out or weird or completely different than everyone else. And here's how you can show that. As a priest, I know I have yet to run into a married man, and for that matter, a married woman, who does not find a member of the opposite sex attractive to them who they're not married to. There are all sorts of married men out there who find young, beautiful supermodels attractive. There are all sorts of married women out there who find young, handsome actors and whatever attractive, right? I'm sorry, that's just how it is. And those are your emotions. And they come from something called original sin. Now, you know what you don't do? You do not say to yourself, that's my identity. I guess I'm just an adulterer by nature. And I can't deny my identity. I would be denying my real self if I said I didn't have these feelings. And I can't help having these feelings. I can't help it, right? No. The truth of the matter is, even though you can't help it, you still have to choose to live in a way that's contrary to our feelings. And that's not just for people with same-sex attraction. It's not just for people with gender dysphoria. It's all of us, brothers and sisters. We're all in the same sinking boat of original sin, and we're bailing together. And make sure your kids and your family members know that. This married man over here might even be more strongly attracted to a woman who's not his wife than you are to someone who's the same sex. And yet, the church expects him to govern his emotions, okay? It's an important thing to realize that. A second thing is to recognize, thank goodness the church teaches us our happiness is not found in sex. We are not German shepherds. We are human persons. And our happiness is found in the vision of God. And no emotional disorder will prevent that from being your happiness. I stand before you as a man who has taken a vow of celibacy has never had sex in my entire life. I have natural inclinations just like the rest of you. And nevertheless, because I believe my happiness is in God, I have lived a fulfilled, happy, and joyful life without sex. And you have to give that message to your kids and grandkids and whatever. You can be happy without sex. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world if you can't get a sex change, if you can't, you know, have sex with someone that you feel attracted to, not the end of the world, okay? We're all in the same boat together. Let's row, let's bail together, okay? All right. I told you I would defend um, against two objections. I got to do this quickly because I found I only have five minutes. I'm going to take a little bit more than five minutes, but anyway. One, um, marriage can't possibly be for the sake of the generation of children. Elderly and infertile couples can get married. Answer. For the sake of does not equal able to. The definition of marriage is not a lifelong communion between a man and woman established by their free consent who are able to have children. That is not the definition. The definition is a lifelong communion between a man and a woman established by their free consent, which is for the sake of the generation and the education of children. For the sake of. For the sake of. Okay? Not able to. Now that's important, because something can be for the sake of something and not be able to do it. A blind eye is for the sake of seeing, even though it is unable to see. An infertile orange tree is for the sake of producing oranges, even though it is unable to produce oranges. See that? In the same way, an infertile marriage is for the sake of generating children, even if it's unable to do that. Okay? How do I know that? Because every married couple, even infertile couples, give to one another the exclusive right over one another's bodies for the acts that are apt to generate children, even in infertile couples, in elderly couples. In itself, marriage involves an act which is for generating children, for the sake of generating children, 
even if it's unable to do that. And a three-year-old knows that distinction. When your three-year-old comes to you and says, it's broken, Daddy, right? They bring a little toy and says it's broken. They mean it's for the sake of doing something and it's unable to do it. It's exactly what it is. No three-year-old has a hard time seeing that these are compatible realities. Neither should you, okay? Step two. People say that marriage is not for the sake of the generation of children, but for love. So, all you ladies out there, do you remember when your husband knelt down and proposed to you? Remember that day? So long ago for some of you. Well, did your husband look lovingly in your eyes and say to you, I would like to generate and educate children with you. Will you marry me? How do you think it would have gone? You probably would have slapped him, said, no thank you. So marriage obviously then is for the sake of love, not for the sake of the generation and education of children, so it would seem. Here again, a very simple distinction comes into play. There's a difference between the motive someone has for doing something and the intrinsic purpose of the thing that they're doing. If a young man goes to medical school, his motive might be for the sake of making money. Is that the purpose of medicine? I hope not, for your sake. No, the intrinsic purpose of medicine is healing, okay? Not money, making money. As long as the motive doesn't contradict the intrinsic purpose, you're okay. And romantic love actually tends to help the generation and education of children. So this is okay. It's not bad that you love your spouse romantically. But it is bad to think the purpose of your marriage is a romantic love and not the generation, the education of the children. Okay? So there you go. Two answers to two objections. Now, real quickly, do I have till one? Okay, so I'm actually, my, I'm actually scheduled to one, so I actually get a 15-minute reprieve. Good, okay. Because I had some other stuff I wanted to share with you, and I hope you don't mind. Are you okay? You're right? Good. Okay. All right. So, real quickly then, Go back to the argument that people use today for same-sex unions being equated to marriage. By the way, I never use the phrase same-sex marriage because I don't think we should use the name marriage. And I'll say why. Just because things are similar in, in some respects doesn't mean they're essentially the same. If I were a grocer and I put round red rocks in a bin with tomatoes and labeled them all tomatoes by the same name, would I be doing you a service or a disservice? They're similar. Look, they're round and they're red. Yeah, but they're a completely different thing. One's fruit, the other one's not. And as we'll see, this legal contract that we talk about in the modern world for the sake of romantic feelings, that is not the same reality as something which is the object of a natural inclination. Okay? These are two different realities. One of them is a natural communion. The other one is a legal contract. You see that? One's an artificial thing, one is completely natural, okay? So, take a, um, the arguments for same-sex unions being equated to marriage. Well, an infertile couple are unable to generate children. A same-sex couple is unable to generate children. Therefore, an infertile couple is the same as a same-sex couple. See? See how the argument goes? Now, I teach logic, and that's a really bad argument. Allow me to illustrate. A cow has four legs. A table has four legs. Therefore, a cow is the same as a table. Bad argument. On two counts. It's an invalid second-figure syllogism. I don't expect you all to understand that. But also, the middle term, four legs, is used with a different meaning in mind. When I say four legs for the cow and I say four legs for the table, I mean something different. In the same way, when I say unable to generate children for the infertile couple and unable to generate children for the same-sex couple, I mean something completely different. I mean an impeded natural ability for the infertile couple. They can at least still do acts that are apt to generate children. But for the same-sex couple, I mean no ability of any kind. If I were to tell you, you know what? My dog is unable to have puppies and my orange tree is also unable to have puppies. 
you would immediately see the equivocation there, right? The same way, we see the equivocation when we say that a same-sex couple is unable to have children and an infertile couple is unable to have children. Completely different thing, no argument follows, therefore you can't justify same-sex unions being equated to marriage based on a fallacious argument like that. That's just too, bad logic, bad logic, okay? All right, I wanna, in this last part of the talk, talk about the collateral damage that comes from confusing these two definitions of marriage and family, okay? So, if I assume that the modern definition of marriage is what we've all been doing for the last millennia as human beings, that really all we've been doing is having legal contracts which are for the sake of romantic feelings, then one consequence of that is that marriage is created by the state and is completely subject to the state's authority. Do you understand that? That means marriage is not natural. That unless the state says you're married, you're not married. And if the state is responsible for the most fundamental relationship in a family, the marriage, the state will also claim responsibility for all the other relationships in a family, including the relationship of parent to child. Now, you might think that far-fetched, but I will tell you, go and do your research. Immediately after same-sex unions were equated to marriage in law in country after country, almost immediately following that in each of those countries, we started having laws saying that the state has the authority to govern and care for the children more than the parents. Okay? That it is not the natural right of parents to care for their own children. So, for example, in Spain. In Spain, there was a traditional family movement. And they said, we don't want our children sent to the, all the schools in Spain are basically public schools. We don't want our kids sent to the sex education classes there. So we want to be able to exempt them. And the Minister of Education in Spain said, and I'll paraphrase, but it's almost a direct quote, the parents should not think that the children belong to them. The children belong to the state. An immediate consequence is saying that the state creates marriage and therefore family, okay? You all know the cases of Charlie Gard and Alfie Evans in the United Kingdom. The parents there wanted to bring their child out of the hospital to another hospital to do an experimental procedure to see if they could save their child's life. The United Kingdom said, the child belongs to us, not to you. And they put armed guards there and prevented the parents from taking their child and putting their child in another hospital that might have saved their lives. Again, this is a direct consequence, collateral damage. If you accept the fact that marriage is created by the state, it means your family belongs to the state. And all the relationships in your family are subject to the state. Okay? Um, years ago, I attended a UN conference in Beijing. And at that conference, they were explicitly proposing we need to introduce legislation for children, minor children, to divorce their parents. True. True. Because that's what the state thinks of itself as, as a, the cause and guarantee of all human relationships. This is not healthy, it's not good, and it's a direct consequence of equating marriage with same-sex unions. There's collateral damage there, okay? Here's another form of collateral damage. If you say that same-sex unions are equivalent to marriage, then same-sex couples have all the rights that married couples have, including adopting children. That means the state is saying, mothers offer nothing unique or essential or irreplaceable to a family. That's what the state is saying about all you women out there. We can substitute a man for you, no difference. Mothers are useless in the eyes of the state. That's true. If you say that a man and a man can do just as good a job as a man and a woman, you are making that claim. Conversely, if you say a woman and a woman can do just as good a job as a man and a woman, you're also making the claim that fathers are useless and expendable. 
They offer nothing unique, essential, or irreplaceable to a family. Now, you don't have to be a trained psychiatrist to realize the relationships between young men and young women when they start to date and when they themselves marry are largely influenced by the relationship they see between their parents when they are of the opposite sex. So a child then looks at its mom and dad and says, okay, hopefully this is how it's supposed to be, right? But they have no mom and dad. They've got a mom and a mom, a dad and a dad. Where do they see that example of how a man and a woman are supposed to relate to each other? They don't in their own family. And the children are denied that right. It's a terrible injustice to children. There's another piece of collateral damage. People say, why don't you just live and let live? We have our marriage, you have your marriage. Well, here's the problem. If you change the definition of marriage for the whole society, you change everyone's marriage. The society is now assuming legally that your marriage is not for the sake of the generation education of children. The society has made the decision, starting with the Supreme Court and all the different laws of the land that we live under today, that your marriage is for the sake of romantic love. And once you don't have that, your marriage no longer exists. The church, the church, the state, the new church, the state will be happy to provide you with another married partner of your choice. And as I said, there is absolutely no reason why it needs to be restricted to a man and a woman, one man and one woman. 32 people can have romantic love for each other. Strange as it sounds, it's a possibility, okay? So polygamy is inevitable in our current legal system because according to the current laws, marriage is for the sake of romantic love. And there is no compelling reason why romantic love demands one man and one woman. There is a compelling reason why marriage for the sake of the generation the education of children demands one man and one woman. And I give you those compelling reasons. It's not a communion anymore, and it's bad for the education of the children. You see that? So, there's another piece of collateral damage. All of marriages are going to be affected when you redefine everyone's marriage. Everyone's marriage gets changed. The state now sees itself as the author of your marriage and the author of the relationships in your family. That is not good. It's not healthy. One last piece of collateral damage. The sacrament of marriage. I mentioned in my homily yesterday that God has made marriage and family a sacrament of the primary, the principal mysteries of our faith. The mystery of the Trinity, the mystery of the Incarnation, the relationship between a parent and a child, a father and a son. What happens to those children that are raised without a father in the new society, or two fathers? How do they understand God the Father now? They have no experiential idea of what it means to have a father. So when they pray, Our Father in Heaven, their minds are completely confused. Or, what about the relationship between Christ and His church? You know, it's no accident that once divorce and remarriage became common in our society, so did religious pluralism. If mom or dad can have multiple spouses, then Christ can have multiple churches. It's true. So everyone says now, it doesn't matter if you're Catholic or not. You can be saved whatever religion. Jesus is fine with every religion. Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus gave us a church. Okay? So we see all the other collateral damage, even at the supernatural level. Marriage and family are supposed to be a window into the inner life of God. And those who destroy marriage and family close that window. In all of this, we turn to our Blessed Virgin Mary and to St. Joseph to help us in these times. Sister Lucia, who was the last of the surviving Fatima seers, wrote in a letter before her death, shortly before her death to Cardinal Carafa, that the final battle between Christ and Satan would be over marriage and family. She said, everyone who supports marriage and family will be resisted at every turn. 
But then she added, Do not be afraid, for she has already crushed Satan's head. Let us turn to Our Lady, St. Joseph in these times. They, not us, not politics, not even the bishops, Mary and Joseph, together with their son Jesus, the Holy Family, will save our family and our nation by God's good grace. Amen. I want... I told you of my last talk that I neglected to bring books, but so my publishers are mad. So, but just so you know, that what I gave in this talk today, you can find this and a lot more in this book called Understanding Marriage and Family, The Catholic Perspective. This one's put out by a, a small Catholic publisher called Aruka Press, but you can find it on Amazon if you want. And then this is about St. Joseph. It's called The Man Closest to Christ. So I recommend both these things for strengthening your own family life and educating your families about the things necessary to strengthen your marriage and your family. Thank you so much.